Hello everyone, welcome to History. Today we've got an absolute legend on the podcast, one of the biggest selling military historians of all time, Anthony Beaver, who can forget the change that his book Stalingrad made to the entire galaxy of history fans. It was a gigantic book and it remains a gigantic book, as do all of his other books that he's published since. Most recently he's written Arnhem, a new look at that battle. Was it folly? Was it bad luck? Was it worth it? He tells all in this episode of History Hit. Now, this is actually a recording of a History Hit Live that we did when he launched the book at the towards the end of last year. That was uh, a, a great event at the National Army Museum. We are doing another History Hit Live. We are talking about the history of love and romance for Valentine's Day. It is on February the 12th, almost on Valentine's Day, and it is in the, and it is in the British Academy, which is one of the best venues in London. Please come along to that if you wish to come along to that event. Subscribers to historyhit.tv get in free of charge, free of charge if you wish to come along to that event. Please go along to the History Hit live page on Eventbrite and get yourself a ticket. It'd be great to see you there. If you want to become a subscriber to historyhit.tv in order to enjoy the great documentaries on there, and in order to come to that event for free, go to historyhit.tv, use the code POD5, P-O-D-5, and you will sign up to that for just £5, euros or dollars for your first five months. Incredibly cheap. I can't believe I'm even telling you to do it. Uh, and if you, and finally, if you go on to historyhit.tv, you will see a documentary that I'm incredibly proud of. It's called Dan Overboard, The Lost Wrecks of Jutland. We identify two German survivors from the Battle of Jutland that nobody thought existed. And it's called Dan Overboard for reasons that you will see, because I almost end up joining those wrecks trapped forever on the thick mud of Portsmouth Harbour. Anyway, please go and check that out, uh, historyhit.tv. It's totally awesome. It's growing all the time. Thank you for all your support. In the meantime, everybody, here is Anthony Beaver talking about Arnhem. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Daniel Dupont. I'm not too kind at all. Not too kind at all. So uh, let's let's talk about Arnhem. We, we I know what everyone in this room wants to hear, but we're not going to go straight to that bit. We're not going to say was it a mistake? Was it a bridge too far? We're going to talk about it chronologically. We're going to find out yep. why it happened. In fact, first of all, though, I want to find out why you decide to write the book. Well, I have to admit, I was slightly irritated by some of the earlier versions, which in many cases sort of played the idea that uh, if only this or if only that uh, had gone right then it would all have been a huge success. Because actually it became increasingly clear as you go through the archives that actually it never stood a chance. Oh, interesting. And, and did you find that out when you were doing your, your, your larger Second World War book? And what, what was the sort of key moment when you thought, actually, this is just the traditional telling of this story is not right? Well, it was partly also, um, you know, Rick Atkinson was a great friend, very good American, brilliant American historian, because um, we talked about it quite a lot. And uh, I started, it started to sort of form as a, an instinct there. Uh, but it was very much during the archives when one was working in all of the different archives which sort of contributed to the book. 
Um, so one does need, you know, um, you, need, you need the breadth as well as the depth in terms of research, as you don't know any too well. Um, and that's why one needed, you know, Polish uh, as well as um, Dutch, German, British and American archives, uh, which means, you know, okay, you need quite a lot longer to work out your way through, but it's worth it in the long run. Well, it's worth it for all of us. Thank you for doing all that hard work. Um, let's talk about, talk to me about the summer. The, so, so the British... Uh, the Canadians, the Americans, they break out of the Normandy battlefield. What is the situation in July, August 1944? In July, remember, we have on the 20th of July, we have the bomb plot, the attempt to kill Hitler uh, by Stauffenberg and the fellow conspirators. Now, the failure to kill Hitler was actually a disaster because... And this is where British and American intelligence got it completely wrong. Uh, they assume that any army which is trying to kill their own commander-in-chief is obviously in a state of disintegration. What they failed to understand was that the failure to kill him meant that the Nazi party, the SS, had a complete grip on the army from then on. And actually, the Germans were going to be forced to fight on to the very, very end. Hitler had basically taken hostage the whole of the German nation uh, and, of course, had it already associated with his crimes in uh, both the killing of the Jews but also the atrocities on the Eastern Front. And, but the British and the German, uh, the British and the Canadians and the Americans simply hadn't quite grasped that. They got the wrong idea there. So there was this victory euphoria by the time there was the breakout from Normandy and above all that astonishing advance from the line of the River Seine right through into Belgium and, you know, the Guards Armoured Division advancing all the way and arriving in Brussels on the 4th of September. So, is it, so the fact that Arnhem was quite an ambitious plan, is that, did that help to explain? I mean, did, did, they think, was there, did they dare to dream that, in fact, German opposition was just, in, just crumbling on, on the yes. Western Front? Yes. I mean, you know, you, you find this in a lot of the diaries, you know. Um, uh, um, somebody, um, in fact, it was Bradley's, um, Bradley's aide who put in, put in the diary, um, you know, everyone's as, as excited as uh, a sophomore, all the sophomores going to, going to a dance or prom dance or whatever. I mean, people really did think that the war was about to end. So one has to understand that. There was that major victory euphoria, which was, uh, uh, I'm afraid, uh, affected their judgment. Right, let's come on to that judgment. The plan, for what, what was the idea behind this push to Arnhem? Well, without being um, <laughs> um, too cynical, um, there was a large element, I'm afraid, of vanity in it. Uh, Montgomery was absolutely convinced that he was the only one who could really win the war. And he felt that uh, if he could break through in the north uh, before the Americans, then Eisenhower would be forced to give him all of the supplies and the support of American formations. Because he was suffering from, shall we say, slightly, he felt his nose slightly put out of joint, that Bradley was going to be made equal to him. He had actually been the land forces commander in Normandy. Uh, but now Bradley had his own army group um, uh, alongside, he had the 12th Army Group and Montgomery had the 21st Army Group, so they were basically equal with Eisenhower above them. And I think it was a slight mistake, but Churchill felt partly to assuage the British press, I'm afraid we're not playing a very helpful role in all of this, because they were attacking Eisenhower, basically saying Montgomery is the great commander, he should be commanding from now on and all the rest of it. So he was bumped up to field marshal, which actually meant he was technically senior to Eisenhower. Uh, the Americans did not like that at all. And Patton says in his diary, this field marshal thing really makes you sick. Uh, <laughs> 
So, okay, well, that, that, so, it, so the, the vanity and, and political jostling plays a big part. But what about the route in itself? It was, was that a good route into northern Germany? Or, or? No. Okay. T- <laughs> um, tell me about as, the geography. As, well, as both Patton and Bradley and, in fact, even the German general said, you know, it was the worst route into uh, northern Germany because the rivers were at their widest. You had the Maas, the Meurs, which was um, a very wide river. You then had the Waal, which was a, a tributary of the Rhine, but a huge one. Um, I mean, the bridge at Nijmegen was one of the biggest bridges in the whole of Europe. And then you have Arnhem, which is over the lower Rhine. Uh, so you had three of the biggest, and they were all together with all the canals that they had to cross. Uh, there was something like 22 water obstacles. Now, all of those could be defended. I mean, General Student, the commander of the first parachute army in the north, uh, said, you know, um, this is our opportunity. This is where we can really defend because of all of these water obstacles. Um, the German general said, you know, why, is he, why, why the north? You know, the, the traditional uh, invasion route into Germany is through the centre, through the Tsar. And, and, and was, what did Eisenhower want, the, te- the Supreme well, Commander? Eisenhower, remember, was trying to play, you know, the honest broker between the Allies. And, of course, the generals, his own generals, were furious. And they felt he was leaning over backwards, you know, to keep Monty happy. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of criticism from both Bradley and Patton uh, between themselves on their resentment at the way that Monty was always being uh, allowed to get away with murder. He should have been put back in his box time and time again. <laughs> but let's talk briefly. So let's, you've raised Monty. Let's talk briefly about what, what, what kind of character was he? I mean, what, was he rather difficult to say no to? <laughs> well, he was difficult to say no to because Monty had sort of tunnel vision. Now, in the Ardennes book, in my previous book, I suggested, perhaps very rashly, that there was, one couldn't rule out the possibility that Monty had high-functioning Asperger's. I mean, he was incredibly intelligent. He was actually a brilliant trainer. But he was no useless at understanding how anybody else saw him or reacted to him in any way. And uh, I was sort of slightly nervous. I knew, I mean, I was just putting it in as a a very, uh, shall we say, um, mild suggestion. Um, And, of course, it did cause a bit of a reaction. And uh, I found the Today program put me on with Monty's uh, step-grandson, who'd been brought up with Monty or whatever, uh, called Tom Hodgson, who actually couldn't be nice. And he said, actually, um, I think this is the best explanation for Monty's um, behaviour. And then, of course, when you always think you come up with something totally new, somebody pointed out that a professor of psychiatry at uh, Trinity College Dublin had written a very long paper on Monty and Asperger's uh, 20 years before, which I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to plagiarise, it's best not knowing you're doing it. When it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Uh, so, okay, so, so Montgomery, r- remarkable, forceful character. He, and he, why, did, why, why was the northerly route his route? Why couldn't he say, I want to go through the Tsar Basin, but, and I, but I, I want it to be me that goes that way? Well, because the British from Normandy were on the left yeah. in Normandy when they landed. Now, interestingly, before the invasion, suddenly Roosevelt worked things out thinking, hang on, if the British are on the left now and if they follow that pattern, because you can't have two mega armies crossing over at any point, it means that the British are going to have the northern coast in Germany when we finally conquer Germany, and they can be resupplied through the German ports, while the Americans will have to be resupplied through France. And as you know, he thoroughly distrusted de Gaulle, and he did not want to have France as his route of supplies. And this carried on even after the war. 
I mean, they, at one point, and this was where we found this in research in the American archives on our Paris After Liberation book, at one point, they were actually planning to send troops back into France because they thought that the French uh, communist uh, workers in the ports and so forth um, might suddenly cut off American supplies in 1947. So, I mean, you couldn't then, it could have had sort of almost not war between America and France, but certainly a real clash. That's a counterfactual. And, and yes. so, I, I, no, no, actually, it's a real. It's a real. It's a real yeah. rather than a counterfactual, but I agree, it's a horrific counterfactual if you've got to that stage. Uh, so, so Montgomery determined that the push be north. How did he convince Eisenhower? Did Eisenhower just give in, or was Eisenhower convinced in the evidence presented to him by Montgomery and his staff? Well, the American system and the British system was rather different. I mean, the British had very much more a chain of command where there was far greater supervision over the uh, subordinate officer all the way down. The Americans was actually closer rather to the Germans of sort of, you know, our tactic of basically telling people what their mission was and letting them get on with it. And so when on the 10th of September, uh, we have the famous meeting where uh, Monty starts telling uh, Eisenhower that he's sending him a load of balls in all of his orders and it's a load of rubbish and all the rest of it. And Eisenhower actually has to put his hand on Monty's knee and say, Monty, I think you should remember I'm your boss. And it was that famous occasion. Monty, for, only for a moment, mentioned the airborne operation. Now, Eisenhower had said to Monty, you can, if necessary, you can have the first Allied airborne army, which was this new setup, very new setup, where the British and the American airborne divisions had been assembled under one overall command, which was commanded by an American Air Force general, Lewis Brereton, uh, based back in England. And when he said that to Monty, Monty then used that quite shamelessly by pretending that Eisenhower had approved the whole of the project from Operation Market Garden, when in fact Eisenhower had not been told any details. And continued not to be told details. No, exactly, until by, the, by that time, it was, by the time he heard the details, it was a bit late. Right, well, let's, let's look into the details. Uh, we've, we've, you've explained the geography. There's lots of water crossings, mm -hmm. uh, but, but the German defences seem to be falling apart. The Germans got no fight left in them. What was, what was Montgomery's plan to cross all these rivers? And that, if I'm right, would place him on the correct side of all these rivers, finally the Rhine, etc., so that, that Germany would lie before him. Exactly. Well, that was the basic plan. There was an earlier version called Operation Comet, which they were going to do with just the British Airborne Division, the 1st Airborne Division, and the Polish Brigade. But, of course, that was far too few. I mean, uh, uh, everybody started to realize that it was a mad plan. And that was one of the reasons why the new plan, which was going to include the two American airborne divisions as well, uh, seemed to be, you know, so much better because it was so much more better resourced. And that's why people were still not as perhaps as uh, critical as they might have been of the new plan. But anyway, on the 10th of September, the same day, uh, while uh, Montgomery was uh, having his knee patted and put back into his box a little bit by um, Eisenhower on that particular occasion, at that moment, General Browning, Boy Browning, um, a sort of rather dashing, um, slight matinee idol character who was married to Daphne du Maurier, the novelist, uh, was the British Airborne Commander. And because of this thing of joint command, he actually been made the second in command of the first Allied Airborne Army. So he was going to be the one who was going to be allowed to take the Airborne Corps to war. And he was desperate to go to war because he'd been very brave in the First World War, but he hadn't yet seen any action in the Second World War. 
And of course, the Americans, who were his rival was uh, Major, Major General Ridgway, he had actually been involved in the airborne operations in North Africa, in Sicily, and of course in Normandy. So he had all the, uh, all the experience, and he actually should have been the commander. Anyway, Browning was determined to get to war, and he worked out the plan that same day, the 10th of September, in Brussels with General Dempsey, who was commanding the 2nd British Army underneath Monty. And they worked it out on the basis of previous plans, which had been tried out but then cancelled at the last minute during that particular August, September, early September period. Uh, but the real trouble was that Monty basically refused to consult the Air Force. Monty had been so uh, angered by Air Chief Marshal Lee Mallory, who had panicked just before D-Day, thinking that the airborne operation was going to be a complete disaster. And Montgomery said, he's a gutless bugger, which was typical of Monty in his sort of um, decision character uh, assassination or character assessment, should I say. And so he was determined not to even consult the Air Force, even though Eisenhower had told him that he must consult Brereton on any planning. And even though the War Office back in England had agreed with the Air Ministry that all planning must be basically controlled by the Air Force because they knew what their aircraft could do and what was impossible. So, after, on the evening of the 10th of September, Browning sent a signal to First Allied Airborne Headquarters uh, saying, I'm coming back with the plan. And um, so they have a meeting, 27 officers assemble. And the fascinating thing is, you've got the uh, diary of Floyd Parks, who's the, who the chief of staff, with the details of this particular meeting, which is absolutely crucial. Here, Browning presents what the field marshal has decided. And then you get Brigadier General Williams, who's the head of Troop Carrier Command, saying, well, I'm afraid there are various things which simply don't work here, i.e. the distances increase. We're now going far further before than uh, far further in, uh, in distance. And he said, for that reason, therefore, we cannot tow two gliders behind each uh, uh, tug aircraft. And also, because the days are now shorter, we're into mid-September, we can't get in two lifts in a day. So that basically meant that the whole plan had to be reassessed. But Browning refused to reassess the plan because he felt that then he would lose his opportunity to take the Airborne, the Airborne Court of War. He should have gone straight back to Montgomery and said, sorry, Field Marshal, uh, we've, got to, we've got to rethink the whole plan. But he refused to do that. And as a result, a very bad plan evolved. And, and so, so the, they, didn't have the, they didn't have the number of people they hoped for the Airborne drop. Yeah. It, it's often talked about... Uh, let's also therefore talk about the Germans. The, the plan was the plan predicated on the, 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 the Germans being in not particular fit state to, to defend Arnhem and those bridges. Well, there was, should we say, a very optimistic ass assessment. What had happened was that, of course, on uh, the 5th of September, there was a sort of chaotic German retreat through the Netherlands back to the Reich of all of these sort of beaten armies, really, from France. And this was called Dolodinsidag by the Dutch. It was, uh, it was Mad Tuesday. And, you know, there they were on bicycles and uh, in hearses and uh, uh, fire engines, any vehicle they could, could loot on the way back from retreating from France uh, to get away to escape the Allied armies. So people thought this is the collapse of Wehrmacht. But at the same time, uh, the British found that already uh, more troops were coming forward while the other ones were retreating, um, and that resistance was stiffening along the line of the Albert Canal in Belgium, and even as they fought gradually towards the Netherlands frontier. 
So there were warning signs there, but the trouble was that optimism in the headquarters meant that they didn't really listen to the warning signs. Uh, there were warning signs from the uh, Dutch underground, from the resistance. Um, but again, they didn't pay attention to that, partly because they said, well, we've had such inaccurate uh, uh, information from the French resistance and the Italian uh, resistance that they, they just wouldn't listen to them. They wouldn't listen to Dutch officers who warned them that this plan of advancing all the way from the Belgian border to Arnhem along a single road uh, was extremely dangerous because they could be cut off or ambushed at any point. And there was Polderland, which is basically a floodplain on either side of this raised road perfect for ambushes from any little bush which happened, I mean, which, or any little uh, wood along the way. Perfect country for the 88-gun. Perfect country for the 88-gun, as you say. Uh, so, uh, so the Germans are there in, in great strength. Do, Not in great strength, but in enough strength to completely wreck the whole programme or the whole, uh, whole plan. And this is, again, this is, the, this, the intelligence assessments are going up the chain, but they're just being ignored. Yes, because I'm afraid this is always the fatal flaw in uh, intelligence assessment, is that people tend to listen to what coincides with their own assumption. And they do not, they do not look, and look what happened in the Ardennes. Again, you know, nobody could believe that the Germans could have got together this, these two armies, these two panzer armies, without them knowing. And they felt, well, we've got, we've got ultra, surely ultra tells us everything. You know, it was, I'm afraid, hubris. This is beginning to sound disturbingly like a certain incident in the uh, British attitude towards Iraq in the early part uh, oh, of this please, Yes, I know, I know. Um, when we get on to historical parallels... Uh, yes, here we go. That, we'll save that, the save that for the questions, everybody, which you will get a chance to ask. So, uh, but what I'm very struck listening to you, how short the gap is between planning a major operation and the drop. So on, on this day when they're having this argument and Browning's mm -hmm. pushing to go... Uh, how many days after that does the operation actually take place? Uh, well, actually, it, that's, it takes place on the 17th, when that was on the 10th. But, I mean, they were at one point thinking of dropping four days later. And it, it, I mean, that's incredible when you think about the plan that goes to something like D-Day, of course, a much more sophisticated operation. But, I mean, is that normal or is even that tight, tight? Well, with airborne operations, I mean, there were some of them which, um, as I said, there were altogether uh, something like 17 different airborne operations which had been planned after the 6th of June until, until Arnhem. And there was also, one has to say, there was also tremendous pressure, even from the United States. They were just longing to use the Allied Airborne Army. Um, so it wasn't entirely at Montgomery. I mean, there were lots of others who were sort of pushing for their use. And as one historian said, you know, it was almost like this very expensive operation, this very expensive organization was sort of burning a hole in the uh, Allies' pocket, and they were just longing to use it. So use it they did. Uh, talk, to me about the, talk to me about the start of the operation itself. Well, the, um, again, sorry, one final thing is to simply say that uh, you know, both General Urquhart, who commanded the British 1st Airborne Division, and this was something which hasn't come out before, but I did find in an American, in American archive, um, actually at the end realized uh, that it was going to be a disaster, and he walked in and warned Browning. Uh, he said, sir, I've carried out the planning as uh, you ordered, and, uh, but I must warn you, I think it's going to be a suicide mission. Uh, this comes from Browning's aide, who was actually in the office with them at the time. What is very interesting, of course, and it's one of the problems, is that when you start getting a sort of roller coaster um, approach towards a big operation, it gets harder and harder for officers lower down to say, hang on a second, um, this could be a big mistake, because it sounds as if they're frightened. 
But General Gale, who commanded the 6th Airborne in Normandy, I mean, a hugely admired uh, airborne commander, he went to Browning and he said, for God's sake, you, you know, this is crazy, partly because part of the plan was to land eight miles outside uh, Arnhem because the Air Force would not drop it, drop any of the paratroopers closer to the bridges because of the flak defenses around the bridges. And he said, for God's sake, you mustn't allow this to go ahead. And Browning said, for God's sake, he said, you mustn't say anything to anybody because it will only lower morale. Well, I mean, this is, this is the terrifying thing that you can have a, a bad plan being pushed forward um, because basically they're saying you mustn't criticize it because it's, uh, it's bad for morale. Gosh. And General Sosobowski, the Pole, had warned all the way along. When he was first briefed about it, he kept saying, but General, the Germans, i.e., you're not allowing for any uh, reaction from the Germans. And we should have known by then that the Germans punished mistakes. And the Germans react very, very quickly indeed. The British, I'm afraid, are very good in defense, but we've never been very good in attack, I'm afraid. Oh, oh. Um, I'm just trying to. Yeah, now that well, I'm, no, I'm come on. Max Hastings is far worse than I am in his criticism. Battle of Victoria. I'm trying, okay, we have to go back a fair way. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, right. Actually, the hundred days. What am I talking about? Anyway, um, so the second hundred days, the ones in 1918, not 1815. Uh, the, the the airborne operation takes off. Mm-hmm. Vast air armada fills the yes. sky. Uh, but you, you say crucially lacking in, the, in, in its ability to lift everyone at once. Yeah, well, in fact, they said it's going to take over three or four days, and that would depend upon the weather. Well, the 17th of September was superb weather, so they managed to land about a third of the forces. But the trouble is that it meant that half the force had to stay behind to guard the landing zones and the drop zones for the next lot to come in. So, in fact, you only had a one brigade which was able to advance all the way from eight miles uh, west of Arnhem all the way through that area and through the town itself to get to the bridge. So all that effort to get one brigade on the bridge? Yes. Not enough? No. Right. Well, this is where, the, this is where those of us in the audience who you, um, haven't read your book uh, come and say, but what if, what if they had overruled the Air, Air Force? What if they'd landed them right on top of the bridge and, and in those fields south of the bridge? Surely it would all have been, they'd have snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Well, interestingly, yes. I mean, but all of these what ifs, I'm afraid. Uh, again, it's a question of having to look at the combination of all these things that might have gone right, but didn't. I mean, the trouble was that the whole plan depended on everything going right. Well, we know in warfare, you know, um, no plan survives contact with the enemy. It's the oldest British army saying, virtually. Uh, the problem was that uh, the RAF actually did say, our, Marshal, our Vice Marshal Hollingsworth said, um, I'm perfectly prepared to take the risk of dropping uh, what were called coup de main parties, i.e. on the bridges or close to the bridges. Um, but the Americans said no. Really? Because, again, they're okay. talking about the flak defences around the bridges. I mean, I still think there was a possibility, but Browning himself refused to drop them in the middle of the day because one has to remember the big decision at here was that there was going to be a daylight drop rather than the chaotic nighttime drop in, in Normandy. So the drop happens. They have to secure the field. There are, there are more Germans present, they thought, and they face a, a pretty tough fight, well, to get through on them itself, but also to, even to secure the landing zone for subsequent drops. Yes, and the Germans, uh, veterans I've talked to, they said what the Germans are really good at, as you say, is punishing the space, responding instantly, forming battle groups. And, and Well, it all goes back to Frederick the Great. March, good. March towards the sound of gunfire. <laughs> okay. No, seriously. I mean, what, what was so impressive, um, you know, in a purely, one has said this in a purely military way, what was so impressive was, unlike the British Army where they would have waited for orders, 
um, you know, the Germans immediately started marching, jumping on their bicycles with their rifles slung over a shoulder and heading towards the fighting. What had happened, and the bad stroke of luck, of course, was that there happened to be an SS training battalion, which happened to be in the woods, fairly close, in fact, very close, to the drop zones. So um, they were able to basically hold up that initial advance. Uh, but they didn't have quite enough troops to cover the route alongside the Rhine, and that's where Colonel John Frost and most of the 2nd Battalion and other uh, troops managed to slip through. But the other ones were held up, and actually, to be perfectly honest, they weren't terribly fast in getting, getting, getting in there or getting, getting, get, getting a move on, I'm afraid. Um, you know, in, the, in some cases, they were taking two and a half hours before they actually moved off. The Americans were much quicker moving off their drop zones. You're breaking hearts in here. You're breaking hearts, Mr. Beaver. So, there were, so, the, so it, was, it, was flawed, it was flawed in its planning, and you, it was actually flawed in execution as well. Slightly flawed in execution, but there was so much bad luck. And then, of course, we have the problem of General Urquhart is so worried about sort of how slowly things are going that he moves forward to try to push things on, and that's when he gets separated from his headquarters and then um, gets caught off, caught out with the first brigade commander, uh, who then gets wounded and everything. And of course, then the radios didn't work. So you can imagine, command and control collapsed almost immediately. I mean, you know, it was, it was a tragedy. As Shan Hackett, who commanded the other brigade of paratroopers who came in, uh, came in the next day, uh, said, you know, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. So that's what's going on in Arnhem. Meanwhile, you've got an armoured column smashing its way up from the south. How, did that, how was that element going? Well, the, you had the Irish guards leading the guards' armoured division. I had a long chat with um, Michael Howard, to whom we all bow down. And um, Michael said, well, of course, you know, the Guards Armour Division was a very big mistake. He said, you know, um, guardsmen who, let's face it, were recruited for their height, forcing them into tanks was an act of cruelty. Um, and um, apart from anything else, you know, they had totally the wrong mentality. I mean, he was a code streamer himself. He said, you see, we were taught to die, but we were never taught to kill which I was, sort of rather, was rather sort of um, an earth-shattering um, observation in that particular way. Uh, he did say, however, you know, the mix were probably of all of the, the, the Irish guards, as the, the mix they were always called. Um, he said um, they, they were probably more killers than anybody else in the household division. But the basic problem was that they didn't have that idea. They didn't, if you like, have the cavalry élan, which uh, Montgomery had so hated in the desert because uh, they often charged off and then got shot to pieces. Um, but, I mean, and this was the time when they really did need to charge off. And, but to be fair to them, you know, nine, nine tanks were shot to pieces the moment they crossed the Dutch frontier. You know, the, the Germans were there waiting for them. Well, they pushed them off the road uh, with the dozer tank, but they still had the, just the one road to advance up. And then the most astonishing thing happened, which I'd never understood until I found it in the American archives. Um, Colonel Joe Vandeleur, who commanded the Irish Guards, describes how they got to Valkenswart, which was the first village basically up the road, and they were supposed to be in Eindhoven on that first night. They got to Vandeleur, and his brigade commander, Brigadier Gwilliam, says, um, oh, but don't bother about pushing on tonight because the bridge at Son has been blown up, and this is a bridge north of Eindhoven. 
And, I mean, a fundamental misunderstanding, because they thought that um, maybe the American paratroopers would be repairing it. Well, there was no way that the American paratrooper um, parachute engineer battalion had the resources to build a bridge to carry, carry tanks. I mean, they could build a bridge just to get themselves across it or whatever, but no more to carry tanks. And so they decided to spend the night in Valkensvart. And he said, we had rather a leisurely start the next day. They didn't leave till 10 o'clock. But, I mean, in this time, the, the Germans had pushed back and had set up new defense lines during the night. If they'd gone through the night straight up that road, and, you know, it was also Horrocks' fault too, I'm afraid. Horrocks does bear some blame. Horrocks is the commander of 30 Corps. Sorry, Horrocks is the commander of 30 Corps. And um, it was slightly unfair because Montgomery had brought him back. He'd been very badly wounded in Italy. Uh, He'd been hit by cannon shells from a Messerschmitt fighter and um, was in, really was not recovered at all. And, um, but Monty always approved of Horrocks and liked him a lot, and uh, he called him back to command a corps. And Horrocks kept on collapsing at times. Um, he was also affected, I think, psychologically, because his judgment at times was way out. And so he thoroughly agreed with them spending the night in Falconsfart. I mean, so they were already um, 24 to, in fact, by the next day, they were nearly 36 hours behind schedule. So... The 30 Corps are moving slowly up that road. Mm-hmm. Uh, further drops over the next few days yes. happen in Arnhem. And that's when... And some days, of course, there wasn't even a drop at all because the weather was so bad. And, it, and those were tragic, weren't they? Because yes, well, the Paul Pearls, for example. I mean, there they were waiting. The Warsaw Uprising was going on, and basically they felt they should be in Warsaw fighting for the liberty of their country. But Monty had exactly insisted that the Poles came under British command and therefore they were going to be involved in the Arnhem operation. Um, and, you know, there was so little that they could do. And then uh, finally, when they did come in, uh, it was already too late as they knew, they knew they were just going to try and pull the British chestnuts out of the fire. And they were dropping onto areas that were that thoroughly swept by German fire at that point. Right? It, the casualties were not at all heavy, actually, funny okay. enough. I mean, in Bridge Too Far, I'm afraid, um, in the movie, you do not get exactly the, uh, shall we say, the historical correct record, because, in fact, um, they, the, the, they had only about 18 casualties, and only two deaths, in fact. But the impression you get in the Bridge Too Far is that they were massacred as they dropped. Are you suggesting that my knowledge of Arnhem comes from this film? No, 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 no. But I am alarmed at the way that I'm afraid a lot of people's, um, shall we say, knowledge of history today seems to be inspired more by television and movies than it is by books. But that's just a historian banging um, a particular drum. So, so, so Colonel Frost on the bridge, uh, the Germans have counterattacked, subsequent landings, you're just throwing more men into this... Into, into well, the planners have made one another bad mistake. You've got to have you have the second battalion plus others, as I say, on the northern edge of the bridge under under Colonel John Frost, fighting magnificently. I mean, you know, the Germans could hardly believe um, the you know the quality of the military. They're back on the defensive at that point. They're in their comfort zone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, but staggering bravery and in that particular way. And I mean, the Germans kept on saying afterwards, were they specially trained in urban warfare? which they weren't, but it was, it, it, it was a hugely impressive effort. But the other battalions were trying to fight their way through. What they hadn't, should have been able to see from a contour map was that all the roads and the way into Arnhem from the west, i.e. from where their drop zones were, came together on the side of a very steep hill. The Germans held the high ground, and they simply shot to pieces the, three battali- the other battalions trying to break through uh, to help the 2nd Battalion at the bridge. 
And, you know, it was a, a, literally, it was a massacre. They had anti-aircraft guns on the south side, on the south bank of the Rhine, who were fighting, firing across the river, getting them in one flank. They had uh, Sturmgeschütze, you know, the assault guns ahead of them, uh, basically shooting them up. And they had um, rows of machine guns on the high ground to their side. I mean, they were just literally shot to pieces. And what did the German accounts say? Were they, did they, they admire the, 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 the battalion on the bridge mm-hmm. and the others? Were, were they surprised at the, the, the lack of Lack of, lack of offensive proficiency that the Brits were showing at that point. Well, no, the Brits were showing, and my God, there, they really were trying to attack. I mean, you know, but I mean, they were, they, they were just being shot to pieces as they went in. I mean, it, was, uh, it really was a charge of the Light Brigade of the Worst Order in that, in that sense. No lack of, no lack of, uh, of courage at all, uh, far from it. But I mean, you know, it was, it was basically, it was an impossible situation. But I, I mean, there the fault again lies slightly with, the, well, very much, if you like, with the planning, that they hadn't really foreseen the problem of actually coming in on these three routes which actually came together, uh, it was a perfect choke point for the Germans. The Germans had seen it straight away, and that's where they, they set up their blocking line, their Sperlinia, to, uh, to stop them. So towards the end of the operation, 30 Corps, the tanks in the south, get fairly close... Well, they then get up to Nijmegen, and what they find at Nijmegen, which, which is, is where, how far south of Arnhem Bridge, the Nijmegen Bridge? Oh, where I'm, I'm talking, talking of a dozen miles. Yeah. It's not a huge, huge distance, but the problem is that um, Gavin, uh, under pressure from Browning, has put the majority of his effort into capturing the high ground to the southeast of Nijmegen, because this faces the German frontier, the Reichswald, where um, they were expecting the major counterattacks. And Browning said, you know, if, uh, if they get that high ground there, they can shell the bridges and the roads coming in, and, you know, that'll be the end of, you know, that'll be the end of the whole operation. And so any one battalion was sent to capture the bridge. Uh, and actually, it was very badly led, that particular battalion. Uh, Gavin, who was the superb commander, the commander of the 82nd Airborne Brigade, great, I mean, a film star hero and uh, lover of Marlena Dietrich and, uh, um, you know, Mrs. Gellhorn, um, uh, Mrs. Third, the third Mrs. Hemingway, as she refused to be called, was furious, in fact. And I think always you can see in his sort of post-war defense um, you could see that he was very much in two minds. Should he have, should he have really fought Browning's decision uh, to defend that flank in such strength and not put more troops into capturing the bridge? Because they then had tremendous trouble capturing the bridge because by then the 10th SS Frunsberg uh, Panzer Division people had started to arrive and really strengthen the defences around it. And the only way in the end was, and there we see, um, oh, by the way, it's a terribly funny um, thing, we see the, um, the, the most, probably one of the bravest acts of the whole of the Second World War, the crossing of the River Val, led by Robert Redford in um, the um, Bridge Too Far. I haven't seen the film, actually, Anthony. I'm surprised you're quoting. But, no, but the funny thing was, I promise you, in the American archives, I found a, um, a, a furious letter from Major Julian Cook complaining about being played by Robert Redford. Well, I thought, frankly, most men would have been rather flattered to be played by Robert Redford. I certainly would have been, but anyway. So they cross in boats, don't they? They cross in yeah. boats. I mean, it's astonishing. And in fact, again, this is something which, shall we say, has been rather ignored or, or shall we say, uh, uh, cosmeticized out of history. I mean, after this astonishingly brave crossing where they were shot to pieces, blow, boats were blown out of the water, but enough of them got to the other side to open up in extended skirmishing order and attack. 
Then they started literally killing every single prisoner or anybody who surrendered. And that, of course, does not appear in, shall we say, uh, most military histories. I mean, as you know, and you too well, I mean, there was a hell of a lot of killing of prisoners in the First World War, but do we ever, do we ever hear about it or whatever? I think that historians have always tended to uh, gloss over the killing of prisoners by their own side, particularly as happened in the Ardennes later on, you know, with the airborne again. I'm afraid they were, uh, they'd been trained to such a pitch of uh, aggressiveness. And by then, their blood was up. Actually, there's a brilliant description uh, by one of the officers who took part in it, and also describing the way that suddenly, after absolute terror of crossing the river, suddenly adrenaline surges, and they all believe that they could kill, destroy the whole German army single-handed, and that's when they start killing anybody, you know, and some of them were just, I'm afraid, boys in uniform who've been forced into, forced into, into, into the battle, you know, almost at the point of a gun. That's remarkable stuff. They, they then seize that, they do seize the north side of that bridge. Why at that point? They, they... Well, then we have the, the Grenadier Guards coming across and the way that Peter Carrington was so, I think, unfairly blamed by the Americans uh, for refusing to advance uh, after the bridge. I mean, this has always been a very contested uh, account. Um, and I hope I'm, well, um, I'm, I, I think I did uh, explain why he couldn't. I mean, the trouble was that, you know, the Grenadiers had been involved in clearing the town of Nijmegen, which was savage fighting. I mean, the Germans had deliberately set fire to most of the northern part of the town. It was arson used as a weapon of war. And they'd had to then clear it block by block with American paratroopers. So by that time, you know, the, not only were they exhausted, but I mean, they were out of ammunition. So there was no way that the Grenadiers could have suddenly charged north to save the paratroopers at Arnhem. And in any case, actually, the paratroopers at Arnhem had collapsed. I mean, you know, that uh, uh, Frostlot had been fought to a finish by then. I mean, they were almost out of ammunition. I mean, there's a great moment when, um, you know, Frost tells his men, uh, literally, where, where you can only shoot at Germans uh, when they're sort of in the open charging towards you because we simply cannot waste a single bullet. And, of course, there's a paratrooper's voice which suddenly shouts out, Stand still, you swords! These bullets cost money! <laughs> um, we, we which is wonderful British army humour. Classic. Right. Uh, so the British eventually surrender um, north, well, they, they evacuate, and then the ones left over surrender. What effect did that have on relations between, well, what effect did that have on the outcome of the war to start with? Well, I think the outcome of, on the outcome of the war, it did slow things down. I mean, uh, from the point of view that it meant that Montgomery had got himself into an absolute dead end because that area known as the island Betuwe between Nijmegen and Arnhem, and no exit there. And in the end, they had to pull back to get to when they finally they, attacked, they crossed at the Rhine at Wesel, which actually is what he should have done in the first place. But, um, uh, you know, so it was, it was a huge wasted effort. It also, I'm afraid, boosted German morale no end. I mean, the Germans referred to it as the last German victory. And what about relations then between senior politicians and commanders in, in, uh, with Montgomery and, and his colleagues? Well, um, Montgomery, of course, having boasted that he was going to sort of, you know, jump the Rhine into Germany, uh, was in such a, uh, shall we say, abashed mood that he didn't even dare go to the conference at uh, Versailles called by um, Eisenhower, because he knew perfectly well that uh, the rude remarks he'd get from Patton and Bradley uh, because, you know, there was Montgomery who sort of, you know, demanded everything so he could get across the Rhine and completely failed to do so. 
And in its material effects, I mean, was that loss of men, aircraft, fuel, tanks, did that, did that affect, did that have a negative impact? Well, it did to a certain degree. I mean, in fact, it had got to such a stage at the end that because the uh, Germans knew exactly where the aircraft were coming in, uh, they were warned by the German garrison still in Dunkirk. You know, aircraft coming over, so the fighters were ready. Uh, not that many fighters actually got close, but the anti-aircraft concentration around the drop zones uh, meant that um, by the end, um, Air Transport Command was simply not in a position to carry on um, more than sort of a few days uh, after actually the time that they finally did surrender, because I mean, they were just simply losing too many aircraft. Well, uh, and so all in all, the, 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 it is a, remains a huge question mark over Montgomery's claim to one of the great commanders of, of British history. I think so. I mean, Montgomery wanted to be compared to Wellington and Marlborough, but I don't think that he, certainly don't think that he rates that at all. Uh, he was very good in the desert in restoring the morale of the Eighth Army and of uh, training them and so forth. Um, but actually, you know, his tactical handling wasn't always good. Funny enough, actually, his tactical handling in the um, Ardennes was not bad at all, but then he wrecked it by boasting that he'd won the whole battle on his own, which, of course, made the American generals absolutely furious. Well, he seemed to have a talent for that at any rate. Now, um, thank you very much to Anthony for giving us that magisterial survey of Arnhem. Uh, please go and buy his book and have a great night. Yeah, thank you so much. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.